We're in Genesis 2 this morning. We're continuing the series in Genesis. We're going to start in verse 4 in just a minute, but before we do, I want to mention, just so you're aware, Genesis 2-4 is one of ten links in the chain of the book of Genesis. The, when you read the term in verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. It's the Hebrew toledoth. And if you read that same, you'll, you'll see the same word in Genesis 5-1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. These are markers. There's ten of these in the book of Genesis, and they're kind of like links in a chain. They, they tie what's gone before with what comes after. And, and typically, you see them used in the genealogical tables. And <clears throat> excuse me, in that sense, they're a reminder of the progress of God in fulfilling the promises He makes to Adam and Eve after the fall. And so in the genealogical tables, at least, you see the lineage of the future Messiah. So this is the first of ten literary links in the chain in the book of Genesis that tie what came before to what follows. Genesis 2 also employs another literary device in that it takes what went before and it expands it. So we're going to read some of what we already read in chapter 1, but it's a different take, and it's a fuller version of a portion of what was recorded in Genesis chapter 1. For this kind of literary device, if you go to the book of Revelation, the last one in the Bible, you'll see this in spades there. So if you read Revelation 6, it actually takes you in the story up to the end of the age of the earth. But then you read the succeeding chapters, and they're filling in all the gaps that chapter 6 didn't give you. That's the same thing you've got here in Genesis chapter 2. We're looking at a portion of the creation account from chapter 1, but we're expanding the information from that. So jump in, if you will, Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17 this morning. This is the account, or we might say these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And let me just pause here. Remember that when this says Lord God, it's saying Yahweh Elohim. So the first readers of this book were Hebrews. And so when Moses recorded this and he said Yahweh Elohim, it's telling the Jews this isn't a God, Eloah, and it's not Elohim, just a a majestic God, but this is their covenant God. This is the God I am that I am. This is the one they know. It's not some other God. So this is personal to them. When they hear this, they know God speaking about Himself, the God they know personally, not just any God, but their God. So when you read Lord, New American Standard has all caps, that is Yahweh. Or if you have, maybe King James may translate this Jehovah, but it's the I am that I am Hebrew name for God. Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there He placed the man whom He had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. 
The gold of that land is good. The delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man, put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat from it you will surely die. We're going to focus primarily this morning on the garden, the place that God sets Adam. So if you look in verse 8, this says God planted a garden in Eden, a garden in Eden. Eden. The first thing is a garden means a fenced place or it means a place that's been hedged about. So you've got the earth and it's all good and that's good, but then within the earth, within the good earth, you've got this special place and it's delineated because it's got a hedge around it, some type of divider, some type of fence. We assume shrubs of some sort, but it's a set-apart place within the good earth God had created. It's hedged about fenced about. And then Eden means delight or pleasure. So when God sets Adam in a garden in the east, God is setting Adam in the garden of delights. Adam is in the garden of pleasure. He's in this hedged special place of pleasures or delights. The garden of pleasure or delight is where Adam is set and starts his residence on the earth. Not a bad place to start. Verse 6, you know, our first parents were gardeners. They're in the garden and they're gardening. They're gardeners. But, you know, one of the, the drags of gardening is, uh, Alan, it's hoses, isn't it? You know, it's dragging hoses around to water the plants. Well, I love this in verse 6. A mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Adam and Eve are gardening in the garden, but they don't have to drag any hoses around. And I don't know what this looked like hydrologically speaking. But it's like God had a timer system built in. There's water in the earth, and it says a mist rose and watered the surface of all the ground. So this is gardening for the non-gardener, so to speak. You know, you get the fun part. Somebody else is doing the watering. Good thing. At verse 9, it says, There was every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. In this garden, every tree that's pleasing to the sight and good for food. So this place is loaded not just with trees, but with fruit trees. And can you imagine what it would be like to be in this secluded, hedged garden when all these trees are flowering? Or then the, the aroma of those flowers as they, they came up. And I have no idea, you know, we didn't have seasons back then. I don't know if they staggered flowering and harvesting or what this looked like, but it would be a magical place to be as these trees broke out in the blossoms. If you think of Washington, D.C., in early spring, you know, people travel from all parts just to see the cherry trees blossom. Well, this would have been that multiplied many times over, both in numbers and in the variety. So we've got all the trees that are pleasing to see, and, and they have good food on them as well. There's also a couple very special trees, though, aren't there? In the middle of the garden, the tree of life is one of these trees in the middle of the garden. Now, you know, if you watch movies or even if you're aware of legends or myths, whatever, you know mankind's been looking for the secret to eternal life, haven't we, from the beginning. So you've got the search for the fountain of life. Sometimes movies, uh, we saw one recently about a search for the tree of life. Uh, 
the search for the Holy Grail, the cup Jesus used at the Last Supper, because if only I can find it and drink from it, I'll get life that lasts forever. Well, this tree, I assume, is the source or the origin of all these later myths or stories. But it's the real deal. If you eat from that tree, you live forever. And, of course, this is going to come up later in the account of the fall. But this was a special tree among the lovely trees in the garden. If you eat from this tree, you really would live forever. And then also with it, a tree of knowledge, which God warns Adam about. And we'll look at this a little more fully here in just a little bit. And then also look at verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. On one hand, you've got Eden being self-watered from these underground reservoirs and water mist somehow coming up and watering all the ground. But also Eden, the Garden of Delight, is the source of a river. And this river comes out and it divides into four rivers. And of course, these at least three of these, we think uh, Tigris and the Euphrates, we know, still with us. The uh, Gihon might be the Nile. It says the river in the land of Cush. That would be North Africa. Maybe the Nile. What's the last one? The Pishon, we have no idea. And, of course, the geology or geography from these initial days in creation had changed significantly because you get a cataclysmic flood coming in the days of Noah in which the earth gets radically changed. So some of these rivers still identifiable today, at least one not. But the thought is this. Out of the Garden of Delight is the river of life. And remember, for us, we tend to take fresh water especially for granted, but fresh water, you can't live on land and have life apart from it. It's, it's the source of life on land. If you're a sea creature living in the salty seas, that's one thing. But if you live on the land, without fresh water, you don't have life. So the Garden of Delight, Eden is the source of life for everything around it. Out of Eden flows the rivers of life. And then verse 15, God placed Adam and Eve into this perfect garden. My New American Standard says to cultivate and keep. If you have a different version, it may change those words a little bit. John Salehammer, I like his version, means to worship and obey. The term used for cultivate is to serve, and it's a little ambiguous on what that means. Uh, Salehammer's thought is the serving is serving God. That's why he, he translates this obey or excuse me, worship and obey. When you worship someone, of course, you bow down before them, you serve them, or you appeared as a servant before them. So here's Adam. He said in this very good earth, and remember, everything on the earth, God has already said, it's good, it's very good. Here's God, the creation, the good earth, the very good earth. And in the middle of that, here in the east, we've got the garden of delight. Now, you know that Eden is lost. Paradise, in Milton's words, we lost paradise, didn't we? It's gone. If you look for it today, you're not going to find it. Uh, There's some sense, though, I think, in which all of us would agree, we've been sort of searching for Eden ever since. You know, after Adam and Eve are kicked out, we're still looking for that place that was our original home. You know, we know the world as it is and our life as it is is not quite what it should be. And there's always, all of us, no matter how much joy and peace you have as a Christian, there are times you just feel a certain frustration. Part of it's because we're not who we should be and will be, and part of it's because we're not where we should be or will be. But if you think about this, the Garden of Delights, that's our original home, and then kind of our frustrated search for a place of life and fruitfulness since, 
pagan worship often occurred in groves of trees. Remember the garden's a place where there's all these great trees. Well, if you look down through history, pagan worship often occurs in places where there are groves of trees. It, it harkens back to the Garden of Eden. Or pagan tribes, especially in north central Europe, that is Germany, they use the evergreen tree as a component of their worship. Why? Because you got a tree that sort of lives forever, right? Because it doesn't shed its leaves. It's always green. And of course, that's where we get our Christmas tree use. This is from the Germanic tribe's use of that tree that lives forever, hearkening back to the tree of life. But also, apart from pagan use, uh, kings and nobility, people with enough money to do so, have throughout history also tried to recreate these special enclosed, set-apart gardens of delight. And just think biblically, Nebuchadnezzar, you read about him significantly in Daniel's book, Nebuchadnezzar built not only the city of Babylon with its amazing walls, but also one of the seven wonders of the ancient world were the hanging gardens of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar had the wealth and the power and the resources to do these special gardens, these terraced gardens going up through the city of Babylon, represented incredible uh, investment on his part. They had um, planting areas, basically, that were deep enough for huge trees to grow in. But he did this to please his wife. Special garden be set apart for refreshing and renewal. Or if you think of Solomon... Before Nebuchadnezzar in Ecclesiastes 2, 5, and 6, one of the things Solomon did was he made special gardens. I made gardens and parks, planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. Sounds a little like Eden to me. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I made sure there was plenty of water for the trees that I planted. Solomon's doing the same thing. It's hearkening back to this place we were made for and the place that was made for us. You know, today uh, we create gardens, as uh, uh, some of us do, uh, for the same reason, to refresh ourselves, to renew our mind, these secluded hedged areas where we can go in and kind of find a, a place of peace again. Uh, I'm struck oftentimes uh, when I think about our own home and the things we want to do, and uh, not just because of this text, that what I'm really trying to do is recreate this perfect place where I'm at peace and life is as it should be. So I've been wanting to put in a little water garden in our backyard for a long time and you can go to Lawrence and you know the the home centers now this is a big thing we love the sound of that noise you know and we plant our nice trees and flowers in those areas but all of us at some level we're still trying to get back to this place that we were made for and that place that was made for us Eden might be your bedroom might be the cabin in the woods might be Colorado in the fall for some of us (laughs) next week It might be your backyard, but in any event, we tend to be those who are trying to get back to the place we were made for and that was made for us. Now, besides the natural beauty that Eden was, Eden was also the first temple on the earth. Eden, the garden of pleasures or delight, was the first temple upon the earth. This may sound a little odd, but stick with me here for just a minute. Genesis 3.8, this is the story about the fall at Genesis 3, but what I want to pull out is just this portion of verse 8. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now they've sinned and this is the fall. That's not why we're reading it. God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And when Adam and Eve heard the sound of him, the text says, they hid. 
So what this means is God has been walking with them in the Garden of Eden. God has been meeting with Adam and Eve face to face. Now we understand this isn't God the Father. No man's seen God at any time. But we believe also this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he takes on a form by which he can meet with Adam and Eve in the garden. And you'll see this later in the stories in Genesis, especially related to Abraham. Who is that guy that meets with Abraham that he says he has met God? We assume that's Jesus. And he takes on a form to come down and interact with Abraham. We understand he's doing the same thing here. God is meeting with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They see him. They hear him. They interact with him. They've had personal fellowship with God, face-to-face as it were, whatever this form looked like. They see Him, they hear His sound, they know what that is, they know who that is. So in the Garden of Delights, the hedged-in place, God meets face-to-face with Adam. So it's a temple, it's the place God meets with man. Um, Think of this too. Uh, developing this theme. Uh, By the way, Greg Beal of Wheaton College has a great book, and uh, Rachel and I got to hear him a couple years ago at a conference, deliver this really amazing uh, talk on the components of temple and garden throughout the Bible. And it is an amazing study, and it's really, uh, it's fascinating on one hand, but very uh, encouraging on the other. But think of this. Here's the good earth God made, very good earth, But then there's a smaller portion of it that's ringed around in which he meets with Adam. You know what that sounds a little bit like to me? It sounds like the Holy of Holies within a larger temple compound. And what happens later when Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the city of the great king. It's a city of God. And yet within that good city, what is there? There's a wall. There's a surrounded area. And within that surrounded area, God meets with man in the Holy of Holies. And the Garden of Eden is this secluded hedge place, separated from, but part of, the larger very good place God had made as well. The Garden was like the Holy of Holies. It's where Adam met with God. And it prefigures, if you will, the temple in Jerusalem. Also think about this. The temple that Solomon builds, it has cherubim guarding the Ark of the Covenant. And what does God post outside the Garden of Eden when he causes Adam and Eve to leave? The cherubim are there guarding the Holy of Holies. And what are carved on the walls and the pillars and temples in the temple Solomon builds? They're trees and they're fruit and they're flowers. So that we understand the Garden of Eden, it wasn't just the garden for Adam and Eve, it was the temple. And we see components of that later in Solomon's temple. And by the way, when you read in Ezekiel, This temple that Ezekiel sees and measures that doesn't correspond to any temple that's existed on the earth to this point, what does Ezekiel see coming out of the temple itself? He sees a river of life, and it goes out and it flows, and it gets deeper as it goes, bringing life to everything it touches. In fact, it says it makes bitter water sweet, makes salty waters fresh. So we see this this element of the Garden of Eden. It's It's a garden of delights. It's this perfect natural spot for Adam and Eve on one hand, but it's also the temple on earth where God meets with man. It'd be hard to imagine a more perfect setting or a more peaceful, satisfying existence than our parents had there in the Garden of Delights. You know, there's a problem, though, with this passage, too, and it's that it's giving us hints of what's to come. So let's go back through with uh, the shadow elements here of this passage. Verse 5, 
It says, there's no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth. No plant of the field had yet sprung up. One of these terms is the same Hebrew word that's used in verse 1 for the plants God puts on the earth. The other is not, though. And we assume that this prefigures the shrubs and the plants, prefigures the thorns and the thistles of Genesis 3.18 and the curse. Now you think that might be a stretch, uh, but keep going. Verse 5, Yahweh Elohim had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. Uh, The rain is coming. In Bob Dylan's words, a hard rain is going to fall. And for the Jews, hearing this for the first time, they're looking back and they're being told about a world in which there's no rain. The the earth waters itself, the river flows, but rain's going to come. And that's because the fall's around the corner and a rain is going to fall. If you go down to verse 7, chapter 1 told us that God creates Adam and Eve in His image. And so we just get this picture of God creates Adam and Eve, in His image. And that's all we see, God to man. But you get to verse 7, and what does it tell us? That Adam's made from the dust of the ground. Adam's the dirt of the earth. Why do we hear that here? Genesis 3.19, as part of the curse, God says, Until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, dust you are, and to dust you will return. So in the perfection of the gardens of delight, we already see the shadows of what's coming, where Adam and Eve are headed. And then lastly, in verse 17, God warns Adam about the tree of knowledge in the middle of the garden. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat from it, you will surely die. Or in Hebrew, this would, this would say, if you eat it dying, you will die. There's no ambiguity here. If you eat from that tree, you're dead. Period. No question. It's over. And think of this. Every other tree on the earth, every other tree in the garden, they can eat from any of and all of them. They can eat from the tree of life if they want at this point. Only from this one tree, God says, do not eat. Now, I'm not sure that it's the same with the tree of knowledge as it was the tree of life. You eat from the tree of life, you live forever. I don't know if there was anything inherent about the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that would have caused death, but certainly it was at least this, that if they ate from that tree, they would disobey God, and disobeying, they would die. In other words, to turn from God to anything else would mean death. There was one prohibition in all the garden of delight, and it was to not eat from this tree. And of course, we know that they did later, and passages we'll look at later, And again, thinking of Milton, paradise was lost. So since then, since Adam's sin and our removal from the Garden of Delights, there's been death and destruction and evil. And, you know, frankly, read the newspaper today or read history books. There is unspeakable evil after unspeakable evil. There's greed and envy and murder and chaos and ruin. And the dying you will die, of course, that still continues today. Didn't, we didn't get to stay in the garden. We chose the tree of knowledge. Dying we died, and dying we still do today. But also, if you think back in God's providence, since losing the garden of delights or the garden of pleasures, there have been arcs of deliverance. When judgment came, Noah had an ark. There was deliverance. There are promises God has made. And to some degree, even even to our limited time now, there's the promises God has kept. There's the fulfillment of promises God has kept. 
there have been, if you will, the Toledoths. There have been the links in the chain through history since we lost Eden, which God is showing us. He's writing chapter headings, if you will, reminding us that what comes is tied to what came before, and God is still proceeding on His plan of redemption. Most importantly, thinking about that, of course, there's been a Messiah. There's been a promise fulfilled because God appeared this time not not temporarily to appear and then to leave, but God appears in flesh. God takes on flesh in the incarnation. The Lord Jesus comes and, and think of this, dies on a tree of death, not a tree of life, but dies on a tree of death takes the burdens of our sin, Adam's failure as the second Adam, our sins, and rises from the dead to become again for us the source of life. Jesus becomes the source of life. Today, if you want to live forever, don't bother looking for Eden or the tree of life. Forget about the Holy Grail, Monty Python's or anybody else's, and your food supplements aren't going to help you with this either. I was watching TV the other day. If I take omega-3 and eat these things and don't eat those things, I'm going to stay youthful, et cetera, et cetera. But how long does that last? If you want to live forever today, forget the tree of life. God's made it a little bit easier for us, hasn't he? He says, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. John 10, 28, Jesus says this. Speaking as a shepherd, different picture, I'll grant you, but he says this. I give them eternal life and they'll never perish. If you're looking for life today, eternal life where you never perish, Jesus says he gives those, his sheep, those who entrust themselves to his care, eternal life and they'll never perish. You don't need to find Eden. You don't need to find the tree of life. Jesus says, trust in him. He's the good shepherd. He is, in essence, the tree of life. He'll give you eternal life. You'll never perish. You'll never die. Or John 17, 3, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know God in the garden or today, to know God is to know life. And in this case, it's not just life that lasts forever. Later in Genesis, God says that the reason he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden is so they cannot eat from the tree of life. Why is that? Because apparently if they ate from the tree of life in their sinful condition, they would have been somewhat like angels. They would have lived forever as sinful fallen creatures separated from God and His life. So living forever isn't enough. You know, uh, people on this earth, if they don't have a hope that goes beyond this life, what what do they want to do? They want to live as long as they can. I was reading a newspaper the other day, a family in Colorado, Nederland, Colorado, has frozen their father in dry ice to preserve his body for the cryogenic age which will bring him back to life. Now just think, I'm a wrinkled old man and my children have preserved my body so that this wrinkled old body can be reanimated. I'm thinking, you know what? Just to live forever, I'm not sure I'm interested in that. Just to live forever. Adam and Eve could have lived as sinners forever. But Jesus says the, the life that we get from him, it is qualitatively life. You know, if you read the papers too, people with money, people with fame, almost inevitably, what does their life look like? It's a wreck. It's a wreck. And, and the people that we read about routinely or hear about, 
that have life or the kind of life money or fame can buy, they don't have the kind of life I would want to trade up for. They exist. And even if they live a long time and experience lots of things, it doesn't mean that their soul is filled. It doesn't mean that they have the sense of delight that God intended for Adam in the garden. It doesn't mean they have the sense of fellowship and life that comes from fellowship with God. So today when we're looking and when we're feeling the pull back to the place that we were made for, we get there through Christ. He gives us life, eternal life, but it's qualitatively life. Even if you lived a short time here, the life that you can experience and enjoy as a Christian is a life of peace and joy. It's real life. It's life worth having. I love the verse in Psalm 36 in which David says, he talks about drinking from the rivers of God's delights. You know, if you have a picture of God as a miser in any way, you're missing who and what God is. Can you think of a, of a place better for a sinless creature than Eden? And we'll talk more about this later. We pollute what we touch. But this original creation, it was everything it could have been or should have been. And that's what God gave us, everything to enjoy and to take delight in. He wasn't holding anything back. So when we get Christ and life, we get all the abundance of life that God wants us to have. We have lost our way to the tree of life, but we do have something and actually someone better in the Lord Jesus. Let me close with this too. God made a garden of delight to place mankind in. And we see shades of the garden when we look at the temple in the Old Testament. But you know what else? You and I are going to another garden. It's not a garden of Eden, but we're going to another garden. And if you want, flip to Revelation 21 and 22. Let me pick out just a few verses here. Greg Beale's uh, hypothesis is that to God through the ages has simply been expanding His temple. And that the church today, as the temple of God that that inhabits, if you will, all of the world, God's, God's made the world, in a sense, in a limited sense, His temple. But the place we're going to, it sounds a lot like Eden to me. Revelation 21, 12, the new Jerusalem, just like a garden or like the Garden of Eden, is protected by a hedge, by a high wall that secludes the city, just like the Garden of Eden. Look at chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. There's a river that originates from the center of the garden at the throne that gives life to everything around it. Revelation 22, 1. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. What happened to that tree of life? Where is the Holy Grail? Well, verse 2. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. There's a tree of life again. Sounds like the garden, the river of life originating from the throne in the walled city, the secluded garden area with the tree of life there in the middle. Verse 4, we will see God face to face. It says they will see His face. And verse 3, the curse and all its effect is gone. There's no longer any curse. Paradise, in Milton's words, is restored. And you and I aren't just headed to a new heaven and new earth. We're headed back, if you will, to the garden of delights. The place God started with us, made for us, is the place we're going to. It's a garden. 
It's a place of life. It's a delightful, overflowing place of life, peace, and joy. You know, if you're thinking of your life, if your life on this earth is less than you hoped it would be, remember where you're going. Or if you feel frustrated because you're not what you should be, you will be. You're going to see Christ face to face one day. You'll become like Him and you'll take up residence in that place, that new heavenly city that's just like Eden, only better. So as Christians, we have every reason today to experience in Christ abundant, overflowing life. And then we know in the end we're going back to this place of delights and pleasures. Psalm 16 says that at God's right hand there are pleasures forevermore. If you're sharing Christ with someone who doesn't know Him, tell him that you're going to the party that never ends as a Christian. Tell him that you're going to the place where the party starts and never ends, where there's life and life abundantly. Because God's the source of that. He's the one who created the Garden of Eden. We're going to the Garden in the future. That's our history. It's our future. And in between, God Himself for us, Christ's presence by His Spirit for us in this time on the earth, is our tree of life. He is our river of delight. If we've got Christ, we have life. We have joy. We've got a foretaste of it. And then we're going to get the balance of the payment, if you will, when we see Him face to face in the new heavens, and new earth, which really is, again, the garden of delight. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thrilled that your plans are bigger and better than mine. And I'm just reminded again how little my thoughts are and how vast yours are. Lord, when we stopped last night and looked at the stars, I gained some sense again of how big you are by the vastness of your universe. And Lord, with almost, out of, with, with almost no second thought, you say in Genesis 1 that you created the stars only, and yet I marvel at them, and we're headed to a city and to a garden, into a place with you in which you've labored personally and prepared for us uh, better than Eden, Lord, where we'll see you face to face. And I pray, Father, that the hope of our future animates and inspires and encourages us as we live life day to day now. Lord, paradise was lost. Paradise is being restored. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.